On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, Bonnie Stewart talks about networked pedagogy. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I've been following today's guest's work for a long time. As she says in her bio, she does her best thinking aloud on Twitter as at Bon Stewart. And I would have to concur with that, although I've also really enjoyed reading her publications, which have shown up in places like Salon, The Guardian UK, and Inside Higher Ed, in addition to a variety of peer-reviewed venues. Bonnie Stewart is an education researcher and practitioner fascinated by who we are when we're online. She's a coordinator of adult teaching and professional learning at the University of Prince Edward Island, where she completed her PhD in educational studies. Bonnie leads digital strategy and professional learning initiatives. Her research focuses primarily on digital literacies, network scholarship, and the intersections of knowledge and technologies. Bonnie Stewart, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Bonnie. I'm very happy to be here. We are going to start our conversation going back in time. Today, we are talking about networked pedagogy and networked learning. And I wonder if you could contrast a little bit for me your own experience in college. And does learning look a lot different today for students, or is it pretty much the same? Ooh, I mean, it's such a big question. For, for me, uh, going back to college is going back in time more than I actually like to admit. <laughs> but I started college in 1989. And so I think two key differences for me in terms of um, thinking about the learning experience and the sort of undergraduate experience then, because my, my undergraduate experience, I went to a small university um, not that far from, from where I grew up, but all, I grew up in an island, and so I couldn't get out of here fast enough. And at 17, I hightailed it away uh, and uh, went to this small college, which was my first time living on my own and, and all those things. I would say that probably learning may not even have been at the core of my undergraduate experience <laughs> um, in, in the formal studying learning sense. But certainly networks were part of my learning. Um, I do a lot of talking about networks with audiences and students and, and different settings. And one of the things when I'm introducing the concept is first I kind of introduce the visual of, you know, the idea of nodes and connections between them. But then I'll say, look, this is not a digital concept. Uh, do you have a family? And of course, hands go up because pretty much everybody has some experience of a family, although they're very different. And even within a family, each relationship is different, right? Each, if you think of each person as a node and then the history of communications between them as building that relationship as the sort of the line, um, the tie between those two people, then it gives people a way of sort of thinking about how, how networks operate. And so I think networks are a foundational structure of 
human experience as, you know, an identity and as, as ties to the world around us. But when I went to college, um, certainly my learning was networked in the sense that I was connected via formal courses and books and textbooks to often the thoughts of dead people, you know, but still those were essentially ties or relationships I was building with those people's thoughts, but they tended to be one way relationships. In some of my seminar courses, because I went to a small college, by the time that I hit third and fourth year, I was in some seminar courses with, you know, 12 or 15 students. And so we were encouraged to contribute and to share our thoughts verbally, as well as in sort of writing or informal essays. But those stopped at the walls of the classroom. And if I wanted to get information to bring to to bear on what I was supposed to be reading, I had to physically go, you know, to the library. And so the two core differences that I see are both that we now live in, you know, a, a much more dramatic version of knowledge abundance since we have access to all kinds of things that were not physically texts that were not physically accessible to me at that small university. And I still at the same time struggle with, you know, how to find the right things, how to judge whether something that I could learn from is something I should be learning from or how to contextualize it. But that, that abundance piece is a bit different than it was in 1989 for sure. Um, And the other piece is that walls of the classroom piece that my learning experience as an undergraduate simply by nature of the communications available to us, largely stopped at the walls of the classroom. I wrote something down for my professors once I went and gave a talk at an undergraduate conference. But other than that, really, I was bound by what could be communicated face-to-face or communicated in writing. And now there are network means by which students can make contributions to the body of knowledge and the body of learning and to knowledge abundance at any stage in their learning experience that can be part of something that other people can Google and search and um, learn from. And that's wonderful. Um, At the same time, uh, it puts a greater onus on, on all of us to kind of do good work. And it can be you know, difficult for students to, I think, feel comfortable contributing to public bodies of knowledge when they're still kind of learning the forms of communication that are kind of considered valid. I'm in the process of cleaning out my house right now, and I went back um, and threw out a large pile of things recently, this weekend, and uh, involved in that was you know, finding an essay on acid rain from high school or an undergraduate essay on Dylan Thomas. And they're painful to read, right? And I'm kind of glad that, frankly, those are not out in the public domain. And so how we support students to learn and yet learn in public and be comfortable with what they're putting out, those are challenges that I don't think my undergraduate professors were certainly thinking about. 
I've been really intrigued by some of the tools that exist that allow us to make our networks more visual. In a prior episode, Ken Bauer shared about one that does it for some Twitter connections and and conversations. And for a while, LinkedIn was doing this feature. They don't do it anymore, but it would actually map your network as it existed on LinkedIn. And it was really fascinating to see. And you sort of talked about the the nodes and the way that yeah. they connect. And if I think about my undergraduate experience, you really described it because the classroom was very central. And if I were to, mm-hmm. to picture that, the professor would be the one, you know, pontificating the knowledge. And boy, did I ever take a heck of a lot of notes and recorded with those tape recorders, a lot of conversations I never went back and listened to. <laughs> and then the, yeah. li- the library was another central place for knowledge. And then now, I-, I will regularly do it. It doesn't insult me, but I'll regularly say, oh, I can't think of the name of that movie or the TV show. And the students will take out their phones and they can answer it before... I can ever pull it up in my own brain. It's really amazing. But talk a little bit more about how our capacity for networked learning really even sometimes supersedes one's ability to facilitate it. Because there's these challenges that exist, right? Even if I can see that that exists, there's still that feeling of, gosh, but what's my role then as a teacher? How has that evolved? And where do you see common challenges with people as they try to start to think differently about how they teach? I think there are, there are a ton of challenges, and the ones that I run into, even myself, are related to my own shifting sense of my role. And I think it's really important. You can't, in my mind, do network learning with students, right? You cannot facilitate network learning without some kind of mental concept of networked pedagogy or digital pedagogy. And that's where I I have really enjoyed the work that I've done with the hybrid pedagogy and digital pedagogy folks, because it's kind of um, given me a central place to hang some of this interest in how networks intersect with education, because I think that they're thinking critically about how do we approach the, the capacity of digital spaces as learning spaces, but rather than just assuming that it will happen, Pedagogy, to me, implies sort of a intentional, thoughtful, critical way of walking into this role as facilitator in this space where the classroom is no longer necessarily bound by its walls. And so the pieces that come up for me, you had mentioned, I think you, you had put in front of me, Bonnie, uh, the image that I have on my bonstuart.com website. And it's just an image that I had actually drawn as I taught my first DigPed Lab uh, week-long institute in the summer of 2015. And I was thinking about all the things that we were going over that week and trying to play with alliteration, essentially. Um, But I wrote sort of navigating networked pedagogy. And then I was trying to think about all the things that started with P that that I could identify as both sort of challenges and themes in there. and. And I started with practices and profiles because I often think of think of teaching as an identity, right? And so when we are thinking about networked pedagogy, you're not just thinking about identity, but your your profile, um, how that is visible, how people can access some sense of you beyond just what you bring to a, a physical or digital classroom space, but also your practices. And so the practices that you engage in as a professional 
I had questions written there about sort of, is there a personal professional divide as much as we have tended to think about that? Because teacher identity, I started as a K to 12 teacher and I still teach K to 12 teachers sometimes. And there's a very strong um, emphasis still in, in teaching for teachers to separate their personal and professional lives to keep that sort of sense of the, the private domain, the personal domain away from what their students interact with. And I think that networked pedagogy and just living in a networked age and, and in, an, in an age of abundance where people can Google search other people begins to collapse some of that divide by default. And I think different educators have different levels of comfort with that. I'm not sure that a complete collapse is actually ever, I wouldn't say that a complete collapse of the personal and professional is something that we ever see, actually. Uh, I know that it's a fear of, of some people that they will be end up entirely exposed. But for the most part, people curate their their identity in digital spaces just as we do in um, in personal spaces. But I think that it's it's important to allow a little more of the personal in in network spaces because people can only build relationships based on having some sense of who you are as a person, right? When we go to conferences, uh, we don't walk around with our sort of latest academic paper in our hand going, hello, would you like to read my paper? We say, hi, you know, oh, I see you're from this college, I have a friend who went there, or we say, hey, nice shoes, or we say, hey, did you enjoy the sandwiches? And we make small talk because that's how humans build a sense of a tie with each other, right? We don't start with formal content. And so having educator identities that are centered around only talking about professional things um, doesn't necessarily work as well in network spaces. It's, It's harder to build community and that sense of the web being a relational place where there are people and colleagues that you can interact with. And so those practices and profiles are deeply interconnected for me. Especially if we want to have more deep learning happening with our students, we're really asking them to be vulnerable in that. And if we think that the best scenario then is just for us to be this wall that doesn't ever say anything. It doesn't it doesn't really mirror for them the kind of vulnerability that I think is really needed for that deeper learning. Although I really do I I work sometimes with educators as well. I started teaching a couple times a year in a doctoral program for educators. And I have really recognized the need in me to be more sensitive to this. And they'll really share their fears and their stories with me around the private and yet I still like to have examples of showing them where there have been people who have really been able to do something really unique with their careers that I think sometimes isn't a traditional educator's path, but really shows them a, a whole different space that they may not have been familiar with in the past. I think there is a really interesting space in the middle of that personal professional mix. And it's what comes to life if you are successful in building those kind of genuine relationships where suddenly your your network of peers isn't just the people in your staff room or in your faculty. It's the it's people could be in any variety of places around the world. I mean, limited by your language capacity and, and all of those pieces, right? There's a, there's an English dominance piece always at work there, but my, I live back on the small Island where I grew up. Um, the people 
here who are interested in the things that I'm interested in, both personally and professionally, are a small number. And so that whole long tail of the internet where out there, there may not be a million people interested in the same things that I'm interested in in the world, but there might be, you know, 40,000 of them. And through networks, I've managed to come to know 400 or 1,000 or 4,000 of them. I wouldn't have known those people otherwise. It, It allows me to be in conversations that I would not otherwise be in and to explore and dig into aspects of education and my own learning and my teaching that I otherwise wouldn't get to. Um, as much as I value my local colleagues, we just don't necessarily all share quite the same interests. Um, and so that, that value of, um, of the personal professional collapse, I think, is important. And I think it's often what we're encouraging students to engage in if they engage in network spaces. But certainly we need to model, right? We can't <laughs> – I always say you can teach digital skills you don't have, but you can't teach digital literacy. You don't have. And so if you approach the web as what Dave White and Don Lankos would call a, a visitor space, right? Just somewhere to go and get things done. And there I I approach many platforms on the web as places to go and get things done. I don't have a YouTube channel. I go there just to watch videos with my kids to show them the 80s. But I don't approach the whole web as just a place that's task oriented. I see it as a place where there are people. And that sort of literacy, that understanding that this is a place where you can build relationships is very important to model and scaffold learners into. They're not going to discover it on their own if kind of you have refused it and don't legitimize it by your own practice. Some of the other P's that I've looked at, though, because this raises the issue, of course, of privacy, right, and public-private. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, there's a difference between the personal professional access which I do think tends to be more collapsed in network pedagogy and network practice than the public-private access. And I don't think that those two map against each other identically. There are even those people who are most personal and visible and sort of voluble on the web, the ones who are always talking and, and always there and you think you know a lot about their lives, there is always a whole lot that you do not see that is not shared. I learned this. I started on the web 10 years ago as a blogger. Um, I blogged the early years of parenthood um, from as much an identity perspective as sort of a poopy diapers perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, I got to know a lot of people who were also doing sort of creative nonfiction and building networks at that time in those kind of semi-peak of high blogging days. And as I got to know them in person through conferences and, and that sort of thing, there was both the intimacy of having a deep sense of what someone's internal sort of narratives were. And at the same time, recognizing that there are whole aspects of their lives that were never talked about that identity that is shared and can appear very vulnerable and very, um, very personal is still, still has aspects of privacy. There are still windows that you're not seeing. And recently, George Valetzianos and I did a piece of research, a study uh, into disclosures among academics online. We found the same type of thing, that while even when people were choosing to disclose personal challenges or professional challenges that made them vulnerable, you know, in in online spaces, there were still always things that were, were not being disclosed. And so, 
recognizing that there is that distinction between the personal and the private can be encouraging for people who may simply feel kind of uncomfortable with the whole idea of, of sharing at all. Um, that you still don't, you don't have to share everything. It doesn't mean that you're vomiting it all out on the internet. You talked about the personal and the professional collapsing as it relates to our profiles, if I got that right, and then personal, professional collapsing or not as it relates to privacy. Could you maybe give an example of each one of those so I can understand a little bit more the distinction and how those may or may not collapse? I would say that I see that personal, professional collapse as relating to both profiles, practices, and the idea of privacy. Mm-hmm. Right, and I, I, again, I was playing with keys intentionally. So, um, but if you are going to build a reasonably successful profile that has a strong sort of network where you then have an audience who see you as a person, you actually have to share something of yourself as a person. If you simply go on Twitter um, or into a network space, and perform an identity that's the equivalent of walking around a conference with your paper in hand saying, hello, please read my paper, you are not going to find that you have a particularly robust or personal or caring network because you have not necessarily engaged in any kind of two-way human social grooming that builds relationships, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you share a little bit more about yourself, you show an interest in other people's, sharing. Um, And so if your practices are such that you are engaging in two-way communications, that you are um, sharing what other people share, like retweeting or connecting with others and expressing interest in what they do, even while keeping probably huge aspects of your professional and personal life private, nonetheless, you will build a much greater profile and more robust network of colleagues and peers who are interested in the things that you are and who are also interested in you as a person, right? So that that collapse uh, between the personal and the professional is more just a a way of being in network spaces. We don't necessarily have the face-to-face information that we have in um, available to us when we're in each other's physical space where I can see what you're wearing and who you are, how you are presenting yourself as a person. We need to do a little bit more explicit work or signal sending online just to give people those same kind of personal signals that we do just by physically being in their space. Um, And so that has to be a little bit more intentional. And people who tend to use the web solely to communicate one way professionally, unless they are already people other people consider important or are already famous, they will not tend, as I found in my research at least, to have the same level of people invested in their profile and in them. I really find that to be true for myself. I'm thinking about some tweets that I sent that unexpectedly got a heightened level of interaction. And it was like the time I expressed that fear you have that just gut wrenching fear when you're about to have to send an email to all faculty and just like, (laughs) and I, and to me, I thought maybe I'm the only one that feels that way. And that, that was, I got tons of people saying, Oh, that's the worst thing in my job. I can't stand whenever I have to send those emails and my heart went out to you and all of that. And then, you know, occasionally I don't, I don't, 
right now our kids are at such an age that I feel okay sharing their photos on social media, but there will come a time when they're old enough that that's their own agency to decide to what extent that they want to share things online. And I'm, I'm somewhat sensitive to that. The other thing, when you were talking about privacy, there's also the aspect of that which we choose to keep private because of our own pedagogy. So I think for myself, I really prefer for the most part to keep my politics out of a classroom and therefore oftentimes out of much of my social media. That doesn't mean that you won't ever go to Facebook or Twitter, which I, I treat differently and, and ever see something that you could classify as political. But I, I like to have our students thinking more deeply than the binary way we treat politics today. And so therefore, I don't want them to label me with, you know, the giant donkey or the giant elephant and, and think that that's that that's going enough in having these kinds of discussions. So I would think that there would be aspects to that which we keep private to be more of a question asker than a statement maker. Does that make any sense? I think it does. And I think I might see that certainly from the overt, like big P political sense, maybe differently because I'm Canadian. And mm. so our political environment is just, it's, it's I would say, deeply impacted by yours, but at the moment, somewhat less binary, somewhat less sensationalistic. <laughs> We're all about Still, to move to see so. you. So your, your neighborhood is going to be very crowded here shortly, <laughs> just depending on what happens. Well, I, I don't know. Um, but uh, so, so yeah, it's, 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 I don't talk about my party politics mm -hmm. um, online, but at the same time, I, I probably do still adhere to sort of the personal is political. And I think that pedagogy is probably always political. And because I work in a faculty of education that is deeply driven by social justice principles, that's kind of always been part of the, the work that I do. So maybe that, that piece is probably a little bit more on my sleeve in terms of both my face-to-face -face and my social media or networked engagement as an educator. I, but I, I think certainly people will choose to, to keep various things back or various conversations that they are not necessarily wanting to bring, it, bring into the classroom. I do think it's also important to recognize that, especially if we're asking students to engage, and, and my students are educators, so I'm in an interesting position there, but my students are all either pre-service teachers, master's level te like teachers who are in the system and coming back to do a master's, or college educators who are doing a certificate in, or, or bachelor's in adult education. And so that's the context in which I teach. So I'm teaching people who are teaching, but I'm asking them to take this sort of step and to share things publicly. I have to recognize that privacy is, is to some extent related to privilege. And mm -hmm. so some people can keep certain things private because they're members of a dominant group. Politics and religion, etc., may not be as assumed um, on certain types of bodies. If people are out uh, in terms of their sexual orientation, there are politics that are involved there that they are not necessarily able to keep out of their education or may not wish to keep out of their education or may need to keep out of their teaching and education in order to keep their jobs, depending on their context, right? But things like um, the ways in which bodies are marked by gender, the ways in which bodies are marked by, by race, things that are visible to others get still inform people's role as educators, people's 
teaching and the way that their voices and their authority are received in classrooms and in social media. And so it's important to recognize that while I can talk to my students about privacy, different students may be taking different kinds of risks in the classroom and in networks simply by virtue of how other people read their bodies and what they say. So I I always think of privacy as as a little bit complex Mm -hmm. there. Oh, absolutely. I know the last two pieces of your piece, which I'm cracking up because I told you how much this graphic resonated with me. And until you said it, I didn't recognize the alliteration (laughs) that's in it. So we've got platforms and proprietary spaces. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, I I, I like the piece because I... Probably the same reason I like Twitter. I enjoy the challenges of limitations kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like what can I do when I limit myself to 140 characters or what can I do when I limit myself to the letter P? But the platforms, to me, if you're thinking about networked pedagogy, then you're inherently thinking about two linked concepts, which is the fact that you have to use certain kinds of digital platforms in order to facilitate this engagement and engagement in Um, or on networked or digital platforms is always what Dana Boyd calls persistent, replicable, scalable, and searchable. So anything that I encourage a student to put out there can be searched under their name. It can stay there for as long as the internet lasts. It can be screen captured. It can be searched under their name and it can go viral, right? And so that's a particular risk, essentially, that I'm asking students to take that I wouldn't be asking them to take if I if they were writing me a five-paragraph essay. And that if I'm asking them to use these spaces, for the most part, these are proprietary spaces. Uh, they're not neutral. They're not pedagogically neutral. They're not politically neutral. They're not just sort of benign things that exist in the world. They are there to collect data. They are there to sell people stuff. And so I consider it my role as a someone who engages in networked pedagogy to also be a teacher of critical media literacy in the most classic sense, right? Not, not just digital media literacy, but the same stuff that I was teaching in the late 90s, you know, um, Noam Chomsky type stuff. Who, who owns this space? How does it make money? What is its purpose? What, who is the message directed at? Who does it favor? Who does it, all of those pieces, right? Those are the same questions that, we still need to be thinking about when we are encouraging people to engage in network practice. And I'm both, I have benefited myself personally a great deal from network practice. I still think there is a great deal of value in encouraging network practice among educators. And I'm also deeply, deeply wary of the spaces that I do it in. I recognize that something like Twitter could disappear tomorrow. And then essentially it would be for me like having the the staff room in my mind disappear. There are hundreds of people whom I value, whom I've had meaningful conversations with, whose work I kind of ambiently interact with regularly, who suddenly I wouldn't even have another way of contacting. And that's a weird situation. But that's a reality if you're if you're, you know, engaging as a network educator. So that's how I see those two P's uh, going together. The platforms and the proprietary spaces are caveats or cautions that I I have to put out there. And and if I'm, I'm always navigating them myself and it's my responsibility 
to make that visible to people when I'm teaching them about network pedagogy or teaching them through network pedagogy and to invite their thoughts on navigating those and to sort of share my own, here's what I've learned along the way for them to consider for themselves as well. This is the point in the show where we each get to give recommendations and mine is related to what you just shared about under privacy. You mentioned you mentioned that a lot of this has to do with our own sense of privilege. And that's just something that keeps coming back to me. And there was an episode of hybrid pod, which is the podcast that's put out by the digital pedagogy lab, which you mentioned earlier, Bonnie, and it's an episode, it was episode 11, I'll be linking to it in the show notes if anyone wants to take a listen. And it was called openness. And it was with Chris Friend, Greg Curran, and Paul France. And they all shared about their own, and you, you use the phrase coming out, their own coming out in the classroom um, as gay men and, and when they decide to do that and when they don't decide not to do that. And it, I, I had a little bit of some back and forth, real good conversation on Twitter privately with Chris just about it really was kind of hammering home with me saying, you know, I, I can just cavalierly say, oh, yeah, my husband and I this and, and they don't have the choice to do that. And it just really helped, helped open up my mind a little bit for thinking a little bit more critically about privacy. And that, as you said, it's a very complex subject. And I'm interested actually in learning more about the piece that you said that you did with George, because I think that would be one be really healthy for me to read and learn more about what you looked at in terms of disclosure. So that's my recommendation is just to be thinking about this issue of privacy and where perhaps if anyone joins me in questioning others' reluctance to share more, uh, that uh, hearing from these three men and their own stories was really a powerful way to keep myself in check on that one. So that's what I would recommend. How about you, Bonnie? Well, what I, you asked me when we thought about recommendations, sort of what's had your attention recently? And what's had my attention recently is, stuff because like I mentioned we're in the product we have a dumpster in our driveway right now and I'm clearing out in some cases stuff I've been carting around for 30 years and so I actually forced myself to sit down this weekend I got rid of the bike that I crashed in 1985 which has been (laughs) moldering all these years unridden because its frame is essentially bent always thought I might fix it up it might be cool let that go started looking through the things that I saved, including those papers that I wrote in high school and in college, I found an overhead. Do you remember overhead transparency? Of course. (laughs) Uh, An overhead from the first university level course I ever taught in 1998. And it was an overhead about the internet. which made me laugh. And I shared it actually on Twitter. And it sort of said, uh, this is overhead transparency <laughs> about the internet. I've been teaching this too long. But the, the piece that was interesting for me was the questions that are in that are largely questions that I would still ask. And part of me felt like, oh, look, I was doing good work back then. That's nice to know, because I didn't feel that way necessarily looking at my undergraduate essays. Part of me felt like, wow, you know, this is 18 years. And where are we going with this relationship to the internet? But what I found from the process of going through all these things, going, going back in time, in my own time, to look at these pieces that I've kept over the years, I've realized that I think identity is always something that we are curating. I, I, I have a pretty good memory. I, don't, I haven't thought about a lot of things that I thought about this weekend until I was sort of faced with the artifacts and I had to kind of go through and be like, why did I save this? And why did I, I remember this other thing that I actually didn't save. 
And I realized that I've been curating my identity since long before there was an internet. We curate in the things that we save. Sometimes we need to recurate and go back and actually let ourselves kind of catch up to who we are now. Hopefully, if we're lucky, we'll find that there's some kind of common thread like I found in my sort of questions about the internet from 1998. But I think it's okay to, to go back and look at your stuff and maybe cart some of it away and let it go and consider who you are now. And we have a real discomfort societally right now related to this network pedagogy stuff of identity not being authentic. I'm not sure that there's ever been such a thing as an authentic identity. I think as long as we've had ways of externalizing our identity into artifacts, into writing, into stuff with sort of internal audiences that these are intended for, I think we've always been curating our identity. So I think we need to maybe think about developing our comfort with our online profiles and our online identities, not as inauthentic, but just as reflections of who and how we see ourselves in a given time. So that, that's what I've been sort of musing on just under the, under the buzz of my head the last few days by sorting out whole piles of files. There's been a lot of conversations online about stuff. I know Audrey Waters just went through and took a whole storage unit that she had, and, and part of it was the contents of her husband who passed away 10 or 11 yes. years ago. And I was thinking, yeah, oh, gosh. And that got me thinking, too, about what we, if when we pass away, what, be, what we'll be leaving for other people to digitally look through or not. And that just brings up so many complicated questions. But I do like this ongoing challenge you have for us to think about our identity as something that we are curating. And that's a process, not a destination, for sure. Yeah, hopefully, you know, hopefully you never, you never fully get there. Well, Bonnie, thank you so much for accepting the invitation to being on the show. As I said, I've admired your work for a long time and have learned a lot from you. And it was just so such a treat to get to have this conversation with you and talk more about networked pedagogy. Bonnie, it was my pleasure. And it's always nice to talk to another Bonnie. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> thanks once again to Dr. Bonnie Stewart for being on the show today. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly update from me, that's just a single email that'll come in your inbox once a week that has all the show notes with the links of the things that Bonnie and I talked about. And you can get that if you subscribe. And included in that email is a blog post written by me about teaching or productivity. And then you'll also, when you subscribe, you'll get a book called The EdTech Essentials Guide with 19 tools to help you use technology to facilitate learning or in your productivity. Thanks so much for listening. If you have been enjoying the show, I would highly encourage you to leave a rating or a review for it on iTunes or whatever service it is you use to listen, because that really helps grow our community and get more guests interested in coming on the show and have more interesting conversations on places like Twitter and the Slack channel. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.